Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today I have Kanan Bohr joining me. We are going to discuss a little, uh, I mean, we're sort of generally going to focus on postmodernism, but how that sort of applies to identity politics. We will also tackle the the beast that is Jordan Peterson a little bit, and then we'll, we'll also let the conversation sort of flow organically and probably probably get into some different topics here and there, but we'll try to keep it centered around around those things loosely. So, Kanan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So, what I'd like to do first is walk through sort of our backgrounds a little bit. I think it's important to sort of situate the audience and kind of familiarize the, them with our position in terms of where we're coming from and how we got to the place we are today. So I would like to let you go ahead and and start off. Unless you want me to, I can also do that. I if you want start. to get a better feel. I can start. I can okay. do this. I always like to go first anyway. Um, so I grew up in a really small town in uh, Kansas. And for most of my life in Kansas was super confused and sort of who I was, what my family wanted me to be. Um, so I was like fighting a lot internally and externally. We were somewhat religious growing up, but I don't want to say super religious. Um, that sort of came later in life. And then I started trying to take it up myself, um, because I felt really lost and I felt like maybe religion would be the thing to save me. Um, spoiler alert, it didn't. (laughs) Um, and so I, I fought a lot with ideas of masculinity, um, ideas of sexuality, and I never sort of understood where I could fall within that. And I went, I mean, I grew up in a very conservative town, um, wasn't surrounded by any gay people, um, any people of color. I really had just kind of no idea even what the world was until I went to college and sort of had um, a lot of scary realizations about myself that um, I had sort of always felt but didn't um, understand really what it meant. And so... About my freshman year of college, I came out as gay and became extremely, extremely interested in gender and sexuality studies. And for anyone who's sort of done that academic work, most all of them um, are sort of like post-structuralists, believe in postmodernism and challenges um, to ideals of identity that have been sort of forced on us from a really young age. And so that's sort of where um, I, be- I began to study um, where a lot of things I once thought about myself were called into question and where I'm still calling into question things that I think I know about myself. Um, and you know, I'm sort of learning each and every day. And so a lot of my background led me into the sort of postmodern, post-structuralist um, theories and positions in that uh, I never thought identity was nearly as stable as it was always sort of made out to be. I, ideals of masculinity and femininity never really made sense to me and why we imbued with them with what we do and how we understand them as so static um, and in the way that we sort of hegemonically position them as so important that everyone has to live by because I never felt masculine. I never felt feminine. I never really felt like a man, nor did I feel like a woman. And um, so I really didn't understand what was going on until I started reading a lot of that literature and that background and then a lot of what um, a lot of my childhood began to make a whole lot of more sense to me. There's a, there's a really weird story that's probably tangentially related at this point. But I remember back, and maybe I was like eight, 
I went to my mom and I said, mom, because I used to get, well, I used to demand my sister dress me in dresses and paint my fingernails um, on like the, a daily basis. And then we would sing Britney Spears together. <laughs> and then I reached a point where that was like no longer socially acceptable. That wasn't like a thing people could know. And then because I wasn't a woman. And so I went to my mom and I said, hi, mom, I've decided I want to be a woman. Um, and that was like not. Uh, I mean, she didn't really know what to say, so she said, go talk to your stepdad. And so I said, hello, Jay, I want uh, to be a woman. And he said, nope. And I said, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and then, you know, once I entered college, I started really, like, realizing that from an early age, I, I understood that I had different desires, and the the scripts of the world didn't really fit as well as I thought they did. And so that's how I sort of really got interested in theory and academia, and then um, I participated in debate, and then a lot more of that critical theory was thrown in, and then I went to grad school, and I started studying it more and more, and now I'm kind of just here, and I like to rant about theory a lot. Nice. <clears throat> what did you? So what was your undergrad and graduate degrees in? What did you study? My undergraduate degree was in political science. Um, I don't know why I did that, um, but I did. And then my graduate degree was in communication, like rhetoric-focused. Okay, nice. So you wanted to make a lot of money, basically. Oh, yeah. I wanted to be um, unemployable forever, to have degrees that no one thought mattered, but were fun to me at the time. Hey, I, I'm, I'm right here. I'm right there with you, and that's why we're here today. <laughs> exactly. Do, doing this podcast for free, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add as well? I'm sorry to step on no, your toes there. No, no, no. That's like really about it. That's like, that's the whole of me. Okay. So I'll also... I shared a little bit of what I'm going to say now about my own background with you just at lunchtime. But um, so I was raised in, you know, te central Texas, small town, you know, football games on Friday nights. Um, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist and a, a pretty, you know, I guess Southern Baptists are typically, you know, like the evangelical moniker fits pretty well and. Of I course. guess the sort of fundamentalist approach to to truth and so forth. So I was very much raised in in that mode, but also I think, you know, obviously the traditional ideas about what masculinity was, and I definitely internalized those. And I was super ho homophobic growing up um, because it was like it was an anathema to like this masculine ideal of the sort of rugged, tough, lone wolf, individualist type person. And I think it's funny because, like, my favorite comic book character growing up was was Wolverine. Oh, God. So that's kind yeah, of like... Yeah, the most masculine that you can get. <laughs> exactly. So, like, the super tough, like, loner, like, doesn't take shit from anyone and uh, kind of does does his own thing. That that was, like, my my model, ultimately, for who I wanted to be and who I, like, that's how I wanted to be viewed in the world and so forth. And participated, you know, in sports, athletics, all of that good stuff. Um, what else? Uh, you know, I was obviously pretty, I was Christian for probably most of my upbringing until I was probably like 18. I always was sort of questioning um, the assumptions of Christianity. I think in particular, like the biggest thing or the biggest contradiction was always like, why would God create me with these desires, but I can't fulfill these desires? Fulfilling the, the, the God-given desires that I have is a sin. And that just sort of never made sense to me. I couldn't quite ever reconcile that difference. 
And so that definitely was always at the back of my mind and questioning and, and what have you. But I graduated from high school in 2001 and started college in the fall. And then a little event called 9-11 happened in September that year. I still remember where I was. And that was a really dark time for me. And I was, you know, I was away from home. I was a freshman in college. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. I didn't know what was, I was just sort of this country rube, I think, not knowing anything, but sort of this like little small town Texas bubble. And I had never really escaped that in many, in many respects. So Fight Club was actually a big influence on me as a, as a high school. As it is on every. <laughs> right. Uh, which I think is kind of shitty now because I think it's really shitty. I'm pissed off because the right, the alt-right has like assumed all these sort of things from Fight Club and another book series that I really like, Dune. Um, you know what I mean? That's where the whole snowflake thing comes from oh, is, is Fight Club. Yeah, because oh, it's like God. you're not a beautiful and unique snowflake was one of the things that Tyler Durden was, I, was spouting. I don't remember that at all. So fair enough. I like that, though. But the context was like, it was totally different now. Like, yeah, they try to, well, they've course. bastardized it, and it's like, now a snowflake is just someone who is easily rankled by whatever, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. someone who's easily trolled or, or whatever. Anyone's a special little, I mean, that's just kind of what they yeah. call lefties, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, the all right thinks everyone's a snowflake if they don't accept racism. So, yeah, <laughs> that is where we're at. But in the original context, I think, you know, Tyler Durden was saying, you're not special. You're the same decaying matter as everything else. <laughs> and I, I love that. And I love sort of the revolutionary appeal that it had of like the world I envision is like people skinning deer carcasses on the, on an abandoned <laughs> super highway. You know what I mean? And that was sort of the thing, but it was also kind of funny now that I, looking back, it seems so stupid because it's like Brad Pitt is like telling you, <laughs> Like all this subversive shit, right? Well, Brad Pitt could tell me anything about that movie. Because <laughs> I remember specifically, like they're they're on the bus and there's an ad for like Calvin Klein underwear or something, and he's like, "Is is that what a man's supposed to look like?" They're just so it's kind of right. There's a little yeah. bit of hypocrisy in this coming from Brad Pitt, especially in that movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> given his physicality and yeah. whatnot. But. uh Let's see, I was also very much a disciple. I was like an individualist. I was, you know, I read some Ayn Rand books. I really liked, uh, she wrote Anthem, which was sort of a post-apocalyptic world where um, I guess there had been some type of devastating event and like society had regressed or what have you and it was very sort of controlled and in, like you didn't have names. Individuals had numbers and things like that, and that's how you were identified. But anyways, just to give you a little bit of context there. Um, so definitely had that, I guess you would say, anarcho-capitalist sort of mm-hmm. mentality or political outlook or social outlook at that time. But then um, got into college, and I took a sociology intro to sociology course where the professor made a really, like, this was, I mean, this seems so stupid now, but like, looking back, it was a really important moment for me is he was talking about how we view elections in, in communist Russia. It was like, yeah, there's, they have elections, but it's, there's only one party. It's not a legitimate election style. There's only the communist party. But then he reversed and was like, yeah, but they could say 
there's only one party in the U.S., the capitalist party. And that that just kind of like, that was the beginning of it all. Like that, that moment is where he's like deconstruct like this whole sort of, then I've kind of felt that was like the chink in the armor, so to speak, or like the crack in the dam that was holding everything back. And then my mind just opened up to different possibilities from there and started getting into, I, I think some of the, I mean, Durkheim and Weber and Marxist thought, but at a very surface level, right? I don't think we ever really delved into Marx's specific critiques of capitalism, but just being aware of things like the superstructure and all of that sort of. Yeah, the surface level that every college class yeah. tries to deal with. Exactly. But eventually um, I did major in English and got exposed to a little bit of Derrida uh, and post-structuralism in general through through that. And it just fit in very well with what I saw happening in the world, particularly right around this time was like 2003 and the invasion of Iraq. And to me, the postmodern or post-structuralist framework just fits so well to what I was seeing actually take place in the world. Like people like no one was questioning what the fuck was happening. Everybody was just sort of acquiescing to this idea of this like war drum. We're going to invade Iraq, which made no fucking rational sense to me at the time. And I remember just arguing till I was blue in the face against this. Mm-hmm. So, Spoiler, you were right. <laughs> I was right. Um, and then I think whenever Bush got reelected in, what was it, 2004? I mean, that was just, it was just a, another, like, successive push of, like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> yeah. This doesn't make any sense. What is wrong with people? What is wrong with our culture? This is total, like, this was just, I don't know, it was just like, I became really radicalized at this time. And I think that's only got, I've only gotten more so as time has passed. But but then ultimately, you know, whenever the financial collapse happened in 2008 and nine and the subsequent reaction to that, I mean, that just pushed me into an even further <laughs> pit of like nihilism and just like, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, can't the world even, did not get better. I can't even pay attention to politics <laughs> anymore. This was my thought at the time. Is like I have to completely divorce myself from the political because it's gonna make it's making me miserable. I this is just making me depressed and angry and upset. And so then I kind of stepped out of that world for a long time until Trump was elected, and then that was like a big clarion wake up call. Yeah. That, oh my god. And then I started to hear, you know, a lot of, I wasn't even aware of what was going on with the alt-right and all that at the time until I actually just randomly started listening to Joe Rogan's podcast and got exposed to some of that. People like Milo and and Jordan Peterson that are, I guess Milo is kind of out, but (laughs) Peterson is as hot as ever right now. And sort of his kind of bullshit critique of, of the, uh, the post, uh, the postmodernist like Derrida and sort of conflating yeah, that Derrida, with Derrida, the central villain, <laughs> the central villain, Jacques Derrida, um, and sort of neo-Marxist. I don't know. He conflates the two and and whatnot. But so I started this podcast mainly to, I don't know, to at least get my feelings out there. Yeah, and get a message out there. It's a good that, outlet that was different than this sort of paranoia that I saw being represented of the left and the anti sort of social justice warrior movement 
that has become so popular in the last few years, you know? Yeah. So that was like the, that was the genesis ultimately of the podcast was to kind of like show what, I guess the loosely we'll call it the left. I don't know exactly where I necessarily fall. Yeah. Um, I definitely have sympathies towards anarchism um, and postmodern theory in many respects, but I haven't quite, you know what I mean? I don't have like a coherent system fully just yet. Also same. That I could articulate, but I'm definitely influenced by those. I distrust hierarchy in all its forms. I distrust power. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at today. Fair enough. I mean, I did, so sort of going along like your struggle within particular forms of theory. I used to very much be an identitarian, very much a structuralist. And I think a lot of that was just really reactionary from for so long, I had no idea who I was and I just didn't understand like my desires and what exactly was going on. And so when I was able to classify them in a very particular way, e.g. gay man, I like clung to that identity like it was all I had and it was like the essence of everything I am. And so for a long time, I was very much an identitarian who like hated anyone who like I didn't think could sort of understand my social position or understand my experiences when in reality, you know, so many people experience very similar things, um, whether gay, straight, um, man, woman, right? Like we, we experience things differentially, but we're, we're within the same structures of masculinity and femininity that are coded onto bodies, onto actions, onto language, onto voices. And so after a couple of years of being a sort of radical identitarian, I now claim to be a recovering identitarian, (laughs) um, where I think it's important to sort of understand that, right, your sexual desires or your gender don't define the totality of who you are. And it's important not to limit yourself in that regard because it's politically destabilizing and just honestly a horrible way of building relationships with people it like breaks off so much of possibilities and finding new ways to kind of think about the world when you're just so sure you're right because your identity is marginalized i guess i should probably situate my own for those for listeners that don't know much about me or the podcast is that i'm definitely the i'm the cis white male the worst of them all. <laughs> the worst of them all exactly and uh but I, I, and I still, you know what I mean? I've tried to interrogate a lot of my own sort of biases and prejudices and whatnot. But I mean, I'm still, I'm ultimately, I am coming from this, you know, very like patriarchy driven, homophobic, racist. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess that covers pretty much, pretty much all of it. Um, I'm very much coming from that background still, yeah. right? And so I'm sure that I do have blind spots that I'm trying to work on. And I don't know if you can fully, you know what I mean? Can we ever escape that ideology? No, certainly not. I mean, right, anytime you might think you're, you know, super radical, but then you go home and, you know, you're you're put back in that same culture. And you kind of sometimes realize the alt-right isn't this scary boogeyman out there, but it's, it's part of where you grew up and it's still very much people in your family and some of your old friends that you haven't seen since high school, right? You know, the alt-right's not Jordan Peterson. Um, the Well, I, he obviously is like a... I think he's... Ra- that's radical centrism, yeah, radical as we'll centrist, call it. <laughs> yeah, 
But I mean, I think there's a there's a tendency to consider the alt right as this like weird abstract figure distance from us when it's like, and it, it makes it easier for us to sort of absolve ourselves of our responsibility in that when it's you know sort of all along the people who were fine with Trump or those around us who we decided to no longer engage with because it wasn't convenient for us to do so. I think too, um, I got taught a very valuable lesson about my own blind spots was I invited someone to come on the podcast and this was before, so I have rebranded. It was 21st century schizoid podcast. It is now simply podcast and the guest declined because they said that schizoid was, I guess the, the implication was that schizoid was ableist language. And that kind of threw me for for a loop, and I like agonized over that for quite some time, and felt you know what I mean. I felt you know it was just, it was very illuminating. It was a good lesson mm-hmm. to learn that like the sort of moral high ground that I felt like I had. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of like this sort of righteous character, the 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 great white hope. You know what I mean? Yeah, like well, that as was soon all- as you be too, <laughs> as soon as you become too comfortable. That's usually what happens is you realize that there's something you've overlooked. Exactly. So, um, after some thought, you know what I mean? And I definitely, I didn't like, I thought it was a real, it was a good critique. I didn't necessarily agree with it, obviously, because I have the the greater context, but I, since ultimately if someone's not going to engage with, with my, what my project, what I'm doing because of the name, then I felt like ultimately I should change it. Right. Yeah. And, but I didn't do it right away. I didn't do it right away because I didn't feel like I had a re- replacement necessarily. And I wasn't sure to like, I wasn't going to die on this hill of like, oh, well, here's why this is not ableist. Like I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to like justify my ableist position yeah, here. Yeah, it's a right? weird hill to die on. Yeah, exactly. You know, I wanted to think it over and eventually I did come up with some branding and, an, and a title that I feel... <laughs> feel good about and i think it also really ties into this whole like into the sort of postmodern right like calling like it's podcast in quotation so it's sort of like calling out the artificiality of or the arbitrariness of titles themselves Mm -hmm. and sort of deconstructing that at least that's what i'll pat myself on the back and say right (laughs) that's some that's some pretentious bullshit but (laughs) it's fine I'll at least go with that story, right? That narrative, that meta-narrative. I'll take it. <laughs> but so we are now going to jump into, I guess, a, a critique of identity politics, which is a really hot topic right now. Oh, yeah. Across I get everything. I mean, let the left, the right. The, the centrist. <laughs> the radical center. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, as someone who very much identified with identity politics, I mean, it's, it's a weird thing to critique and it's a weird thing to talk about because you, you get into a lot of really muddy waters, um, because right, I don't want to identify the same way politically as the alt-right and the hatred of identity. Um, especially because I think identity politics has been immensely successful at sort of generating political organizing, at generating collectives at calling into question the sort of majoritarian standard of the white male that all identity seems to be um, coded in relation to and understood um, in relation to. But at the same time, I think it's 
it's conser- it's a conservative force and it's a conservative view of the world to understand identity as sort of the the primary metric of all individuals and the way that the entire world should be structured is based on particular identity categories. So a lot of my background and reading in this is as I've as I've talked about previously very much focused on gender and sexuality. And so in the way that so much of identity politics relies on a centralized notions of gender and of sexuality, and that they assume a truth to both of them as like real metaphysical categories that I ultimately just don't think exist. And by exist, I mean, well, I mean, like they exist at, you know, some level and that they're socially constructed. And when things are socially constructed, they do have very real material effects, right? Like norms can come into being and we very much abide by them and punish people based on them. Um, and so, right, like masculinity and femininity as entirely socially constructed, but they gain rhetorical legitimacy and force over time by us performing and accepting them um, sort of repetitiously. And then when people don't abide by that, they become very real categories um, and ways to discipline people. But ultimately, I think when we claim sort of a centralized, a centralized understandings of both gender and sexuality, we limit our conceptions of identity and we limit our conceptions of the self and our ability to sort of relate to others. And so I think one, one great way to put this in terms of sexuality is that the, the very idea of tying sexuality to gay or straight which itself sort of relies on a weird binary that I don't think exists because a continuum exists, but that's sort of maybe beside the point. Um, but right, de- having different desires for sex with different people to tie that directly to sexuality is not productive. It doesn't teach you really anything more about who you are. It doesn't sort of help uncover any weird truth about you that makes you a lot happier as a person that makes you more whole I mean, you can tell yourself it does and find find a lot of solace in it, which I certainly have, but it doesn't at any level really tell you anything important other than that you're different from someone else because your desires are, and so now you're in like an entirely different category of being as someone else, and so you can like organize against them or with them. It's just when you when you tie it so concretely to identity, you... You limit weird under, you limit potential understandings of yourself, and so the same thing happens with gender politics. In that, people claim um, like a metaphysical truth to womanhood or a metaphysical truth to manhood, and that you become so tied to that and ignore that 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 concept doesn't exist other than what we've made it out to be. We've tied genitalia to gender, but that's a conflation of sex and gender. And it's an unproductive and it's an extremely violent one. And so in current LGBT visibility politics um, participates in a lot of the same violence. And so the way that gay white men, for example, when they understand their identity as solely being a gay male and thus they are oppressed because they are gay, they are able to use that sort of victimhood understanding of their identity to attack others. And so this has happened through things like when, so here's a good example of on the day that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, the Senate put a halt to the DREAM Act to make it harder for immigration to occur. 
But that was fine because, gay, remember, gay men are extremely oppressed and this is their identity politic and they don't really, they can't sort of see outside of that. And so um, another example is when the Hate Crimes Prevention Act was passed and gender and sexuality was tied and made into um, a hate crime under legal legislation, that same bill was a, was a writer. It was attached to a military appropriations bill to expand American imperialist projects abroad to fund drones, to fund airstrikes. Um, and right, these are these are things that are intimately connected in the way that we have more representation of people of different minoritarian groups. And so we believe that we are now benign, we're a nice benevolent country, we're now a beacon of human rights. And we use that to justify violence against other people who aren't performing in the same way that we are, when in reality, it's not so much an acceptance of gay people or um, uh, of people of color, but it's a sort of tolerance for the purpose of expanding that same violence that, has, that never dissipated because of increased representation. And a similar thing happens with current transgender politics in that so much of it is tied on a redemptive understanding of identity that of I am or I want to become a real woman or become a real man, which assumes a realness to that itself, which is which is highly problematic and participates in the the gender apparatus that exists that's doing the violence. And so you can expand the sort of social dimensions of gender and you can find new ways to live within it. You can become, you can claim to be non-binary. But at the, at the same time, you have to understand that the problem is not so much the existence of different forms of domination via identity, but it's, it's that systems of power find new ways always to control. And so when you increase, right, you can, people are claiming to be, and people certainly are, non-binary, genderqueer, but at, at the same time, it upholds gender as an apparatus of capture, as gender as something that's real and that exists, when fundamentally it doesn't. And so I think rather than trying to claim to identity politics to sort of expand different minoritarian groups and understandings, we should be attacking the very structure of gender and sexuality itself. So don't build on it. Don't find new ways for power to sort of control and regulate lives, but just burn it, burn that entire apparatus to the ground. That is what we should be attacking, less so than forming bonds based solely on one's understanding of identity and as if you have an experience that literally no one else can understand or relate to. Because I just think it's extremely politically limiting and wrong in its essentialized understanding of gender and sexuality. So that was a lot. So. <laughs> Woo. Um, a, cu a couple of things. Um, I mean, like I was situating my own self in sort of this hyper-masculine world, right? And the worst, at, at a time, like the worst thing that you could call me would be like, if you called me gay, like that was, that was a threat to me. Like that was a threat to my, my idea of masculinity and myself and like this image, this ideal image of the masculine, right? And so I would, I, at one time I would probably, that would be like a fighting, like I would fight you physically yeah, absolutely. At, at some point if you, if there were, you know what I mean? If you called my masculinity into question and being called gay was like the worst, that was like the worst thing that I could be called, you know, as a straight, like white person, right? Yeah. Was to have my masculinity called into question and I would de physically fight you to, de to defend this 
made up category. And I was talking to you too about, I was like, I've so internalized this logic of like masculinity or this, this category that, you know, it does have something that like, it feels natural that I'm not, I'm like, I've so internalized this that I'm not physically attracted to men. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The way that social norms can sort of produce biological reality. Exactly. So yeah, precisely. Yeah. yeah, We're indoctrinated at, like we were talking about this earlier that a fetus is gendered like you are gendered before you are even born because once the once the sonogram is done and you can you can see a a vagina or a penis you now immediately know the gender somehow of your child and there are gender reveal parties which are like the most cringeworthy (laughs) thing in the world to me and so built into the very apparatus of gender is dysphoria in that once you're born and you're told you are a man or a woman you thus must be masculine or feminine. And then if you can't live up to those ideals, right, d- dysphoria is, becomes built in and into the structure itself. And so that's so much my problem of when we're not focusing on that structure, but just trying to find new creative ways to live within it and have different understandings of it. It doesn't do anything to challenge its existence. You know, claiming non-binary sort of tacitly normalizes the existence of a binary as if gender is between man or woman, um, which you can sort of trace historically as, as being untrue. And the right, you can claim gay is, is as normal as, as being straight, right? You can, you can assimilate, you can fade in to the population, but at the same time, you're not challenging the idea that you have to be a real Right, you you don't have to be real, a real woman or a real man to exist. You shouldn't have to assimilate to have your body respected, to have bodily autonomy, and to have the right to be in the world. Because at some point, you can always try to sort of reach the origin of this is where I need to be to feel com- comfortable and confident in myself. But you don't reach that origin because that origin doesn't actually exist. It's something we've entirely made up and imbued with cultural and social signifiers and values. But if the origin doesn't exist and you can you can only ever sort of approach and get closer to it, you, you never achieve sort of what, what you're trying to achieve. And so, you know, you can claim that if, which the, another problem with, I have so much of with trans <laughs> politics is like assigning transness and only focusing on things based on like cut, the cutting off of genitalia or the cutting off of breasts or the shot of testosterone or the shot of estrogen is it reduces gender solely to that point of the like physical transition that allows you to pass as male or female. But that again is you shouldn't have to be able to pass as male or female to exist in the world. And inevitably our bodies will signify differently. I can do everything in my power to pass as straight. But at the end of the day, you and I's bodies will signify differently. I can I can fade closer to sort of the cis straight heteronormative ideal, and I can certainly get fairly close. Um, and I'm lucky in that regard. Uh, but my body will inevitably signify differently. I, I I will never fully reach that origin. And so it's important to not invest political energy in trying to assimilate and reach that origin, but instead invest political energy and trying to uproot the very structures that are killing us all, however, differentially. What do you think about this in the context 
I was thinking about this sort of Foucault's, I guess, history of sexuality about, you know, the difference and where a homosexual became an identity yeah. versus just acts. And that trend, I'm not super well read on that, but I yeah, uh, have a vague sort of... Yeah, a- I also have a, a very like novice level um, reading of it. But from my understanding, it, it is primarily based in psychiatry in the way that we started deeming different sexual desires um, and categorizing and classifying them in very unique ways. And so to have to be a male and have sexual desires to a male had to be classified as homosexual. And that made it extremely, extremely easy to sort of diagnose um, at an early age. And it became easier to monitor and control by parents, by teachers, by sort of people you were surrounded by. And if you could control that at an early age, it was thought, well, you could you know, eliminate the existence of homosexuality. And so those desires had to be made into sexuality. They had to be classified as such because otherwise it you can't control it. If you just understand a desire as a desire and people don't like make a claim to identity based on that, right? How do you control that? Because it's so hidden. But when people can claim and I have their entire life based on that, based on their sexuality, it's a lot easier to control and monitor um, and so that's sort of like my very light level reading of Foucault <laughs> and the way that over time sexuality, um, or desire, sexual desires became tied to sexuality. What I think is very interesting about that, a, a couple of different things. One is sort of this quote unquote rationalist approach to this that you just described essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is, I wonder like how much of a role is you know what I mean? Because I think this identity is kind of, this is, if I'm not mistaken, this sort of arises at the simil- at this like industrial revolution era, right? Mm-hmm. The mo- like modernity, we're trying to understand things from a scientific rational approach, right? Like I wonder how much of this ties into, into this, into capitalism in terms of we have to, like th- these these acts are not productive in terms of like population wise. Um, we need, we need people to be performing these traditional gender roles of male, female to reproduce and create new workers and consumers for the capitalist superstructure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think initially it was decided, you know, we need and have an, have this sort of ideal image of a perfect nuclear family, a man married to a woman, the woman stays at home and, her sole job is domestic labor and to produce children and to birth for the nation, to produce future consumers. Um, while the man went out and participated in like grunt work, um, and like hard physical labor. And that, you know, became to define masculinity and femininity was based solely on domestic work and how many children you were having, if you were being a proper woman. And then over time, powers sort of evolved because we've realized that's not nearly as economically efficient. Um, I mean, right, you can, the, it's become extremely difficult to have the nuclear family maintain its hold because it's, there, it's expensive to have a bunch of kids and it's a lot um, better for the economy if women also can go get jobs in a bunch of different sectors. And so the way that capitalism is sort of expanded into every aspect of life and it's made identity extremely profitable i mean you can just go to any single gay pride parade in america and you'll see that what was once 
away these parades used to be based ways for queer people to generate collectively um to uproot institutions and so act up did a great job of this when um fighting against hiv and aids when the government had no desire to listen or to do anything about it and was trying to get scientific work approved and research done to be able to create a cure for it and so one that there used to be collectives that would come up and try to fight these structures but now capitalism has taken hold of those meetings and those that collective organizing and has found a way to profit off of it which is let's have a pride parade bring in a hundred corporations who sell pride flags and who sell different little rainbow flags of um signs and posters and whatever and then profits and then everyone goes home and goes back to their life. And it's like, what, what, what did that achieve? Absolutely nothing. But capitalism has found that if one cling, clings to an identity so heavily that, that it's totally fine, right? You can, you can exist in the world now as long as you still use the vernacular of the market, as long as you are still buying and um, being profitable enough. You can even enter you know, alternative subcultures that seem so outside of capitalism as long as it doesn't actually challenge capitalism, right? Like you can exist outside of the system, whatever that means, as long as you're not actually doing anything to the system, right? It's sort of built in those like weird, those moments of like revolutionary response seem to be so built into our current systems of power. So it makes organizing so, so much more difficult and it makes identity politics so much more limiting. And that, yes, we yes, identity politics has been so successful at organizing to get laws changed and and to get people together to generate new ideas and of what we can do. But ultimately, those same structures have just found ways to take those progressive gains and do nothing with them. I think it's sort of interesting, especially in the context of postmodernity. It's like. And this also ties into, I think, the, you know, we you brought up the nuclear family, which we discussed before the show, is that, and, like, my critique is that, you know, all right, we always hear from the conservative conservatives that, you know, it's liberals or the left is destroying the family, and... Yeah, how could you ever not want to have kids? <laughs> um, in many ways, like, my response is that it's, capitalism has placed us in this position to where it's too expensive you know what i mean like there's first of all there's more it's created a multiplicity of choices right since you know women are now in the workplace they so that they can produce as much they're not having to be forced to subjugate themselves to a to a man through through marriage and have kids in that traditional route so that that development in capitalism is what is in my opinion having more impact on the the nuclear family than, you know, video games or, or media or, or what yeah, have you. Yeah, no, it's you capitalism know I mean? it's like, eating its own tail. It's it's expanding where it's destroying its own sort of ideals that it once created. But at the same time it's, you know, it's creating more and more ideals that can that can take its place and become profitable, right? So now diversity is championed at such an extreme rate and for great reason but what capitalism does to that diversity is it sort of hollows out people of all content and character it's like it cares about representation because that's profitable but it doesn't want any actual message in that representation to do anything to challenge the system so it's 
diversity for diversity's sake, but not diversity to actually change the world that we live in and to eliminate social biases and discrimination that's occurring at a rampant pace. Right. So things like, yeah, I would see people on sort of left Twitter always being like, yeah, more, more female CEOs or more female um, drone pilots or what have yeah, you. you know yeah, what I mean? as like, of having and that's yeah, more equity. women running drones is like, <laughs> right, oh, well, at least there's equal representation. And it's like, well, you know who probably doesn't care about that equal representation? The people being bombed by drones. So, I mean, that that's a problem. I, I remember um, back before the election, I saw a lot of people posting like, well, we need Hillary to be president because women are more empathetic than men. And I'm just like, I just have, it's like, how do <laughs> Gender I, essentialism. it's like, how do yeah. I even get across that? Like, yes, biologically, so many more women are empathetic than men, but that's not a natural fact. That's not like a truth in the world. It's like, we've literally made that a biological reality by telling men that to be empathetic is to be feminine and to be feminine is to mean you're gay and to be right, gay exactly. is horrible, right? Yeah. Like, so... It's like, yes, Hillary might be more empathetic uh, than Trump, and God <laughs> God knows she uh, is, but, like, do we really want to stake our claim on that narrative politically? Like, is that how we want to go? Like, yes, maybe it produces a good interim gain, but, like, at the same time, if if you're willing to continue to essentialize gender in that way, then you're going to, the same exact problem is going to appear down the road. So it's like you can keep producing interim gains, gains, but until you confront the reality of that structure, you're just kind of just chasing your own tail and just delaying the sort of inevitable thing that you're going to have to confront, which is a lot. Right, right, the entire system at large. And I think that's an important thing, even outside, even outside of like identity politics. It's just like, you know, even if Bernie Sanders was president of the U.S., that's not going to materially change the, or alter the, like... The lived reality of... Exactly. It's, like, just, like, these nominal, like, voting these people in, like, that's top-down change. That's never going to work Yeah. That I mean, well. women aren't going to suddenly become valued because Bernie Sanders is president. Black people are not going to suddenly be valued because Bernie Sanders is president. Or Obama, for that, for that matter. Yeah, you know I, mean, I mean, like, I think Obama clearly showed that... <laughs> it didn't change anything. There was great political representation, but at the same time, he expanded the war on terror and drone strikes. We continued to deport immigrants. I mean, it's like not a whole lot changed. And at the same time, we still have the prison industrial complex, which is producing just an alternative form of slavery and that we just continue to jail black people at a disproportionate rate, force them to do labor for 10 cents a day, and we sell that labor for profit to the rest of America and trade it with the rest of the world. It's like, yes, you can have representation and yes, you can produce interim gains. But until you're willing to confront those structures, you are just displacing where that violence goes and making it more invisible so you can think that you're being progressive. It's like, it's why white gay men think they're so progressive and they, they can't be misogynist. They're like, well, I'm sort of feminine too. And so I, I must love women. I can't do anything bad to women. And it's people become so centered in their identity and their understanding of it and that they are victim that they can't even conceive of the consequences outside of it. Like people have no idea that for Don't Ask, Don't Tell to be repealed, the Senate had to put a halt to the DREAM Act. It was horse trading that went down in Congress. And it's like, are you, 
are you willing to make that trade though? Like, are you, are you willing to be able to be out in the military at the expense of people being deported? Like, like, are you actually willing? And it's like a terrifying thing to me that people both don't know that and are willing to make that trade. So it's like, yes, interim gains, but only ever interim gains for the self and never for other people. Right. Never a broader context. Yeah. Never a collective. Only ever focus solely on your on yourself. That kind of brings to mind this idea that I've, or this formulation that I've had of like, sort of, I guess the, I guess post-modernity as, in a sense, as a set of, like, it's a set of material conditions that are producing these, this situation in terms of, I don't know necessarily how to articulate this very, like, super well, but just... I mean, I guess the broadest example I can apply would be like media, right? We, you know, at one time there were only like three networks. Now we have, you know, hundreds of, of mm-hmm. television networks. So there's not, there's less of a like of a shared culture going around, and we're being more atomized by, especially, and it's you know gone into hyper speed in terms of social media, in particular. Mm-hmm. And siloing us in these different, like individual, like segments of these different demo- demographies and and what have you, and that it's sort of this late capitalist push to like this is an easier way to control us is to create all these little niche cultures and there's no mass, no ability for mass change because we're all like, I I am a gamer, I am yeah. this, I am I'm an I like avant garde fashion, right? Like calling my own self out there. <laughs> No, I think that's exactly right in the way that, you know, like those coding processes go down on social media to where you only see like things that you'd be interested in. So you end up only seeing um, like your friend's post that you've like politically agree with, for example. Um, That's just so dangerous. And it's why so many of us, um, myself included, were so surprised when Trump was elected. I was just like, what are you talking about? I didn't see anyone supporting him. And then you remember it's because you've been isolated to like a very niche group. Um, and you don't see anyone outside of yourself and you're like, oh, that's because like an entire world outside of me exists that I thought I could ignore. And then when I found out I couldn't ignore it, I realized the consequence, which is Trump. You know, you, you bring this up, this immediately made me think back to, this is a great example of how I feel like capitalism's evolution has really done it's what it is the cause of all of this social damage to or like institutions because you think people were at one time were a lot more involved in the community at least not you know what i mean at least in some sense because you had a church community right more people were going to church on sunday they were involved in whatever the fucking elks lodge or you know what i mean they were on a bowling league or like there were a lot more community-based institutions that people participated in and now people are totally you know what i mean there's let like the community sphere is completely gone and it's been replaced by this you know this market like the now the forum is like facebook or twitter or what have you and we feel it like it's this simulated version of community that's not you know what i mean i agree with that to some extent but and i know you'll agree with me here that while social media has sort of like fragmented us and in so many ways it also still i think holds the potential for us to organize in in different ways right like you can now reach an audience 
at a level you've never been able to right. reach an audience before. So if you can convince people to organize, social media is a great way to do it because you can get so many people to organize from it by inviting them, by getting the message out. And so I don't think social media has to fragment us in the way that it is doing. Um, but I think we've sort of accepted that as as a thing. And it, it is also hard to sometimes get the message out because of the way that I, like Facebook coding works. Like when you only see things that like agree with you, you only see ads that agree with you. Like you're unaware that other protests are going on that you haven't previously interacted with that you might be interested in interacting with or you might be interested in being against and sort of like counter organizing against it. But it's like you don't see so much of that anymore because of the way that that the system itself has like made it made it extremely difficult to find that. And so I, I do think you're right that social media is fragmenting us in a really unique way and that we're seeing a lot less collectives, but I don't think that has to be the case. Certainly. I mean, whenever I was in grad school, right, or it was I so I got I, my degree in my grad degree in mass communication emphasis in new media. And at the time I saw this tremendous potential for the new media to be utilized to flatten, you know what I mean? Because you have the same ability to reach an audience as a giant corporation or, or what mm -hmm. have you. Right. And, um, I even wrote a paper about this too, kind of incorporating this sort of idea. Cause I was looking at the Zapatista movement in uh, Chiapas, um, because they sort of use early like online news groups and message boards to get a lot of NGOs attention and so forth. And, uh, build a coalition there because they were just the indigenous farmers in Chiapas were just totally devastated by NAFTA. Mm -hmm. Right. And then like, look, I think I looked at like Hezbollah and Al Qaeda as examples of how this could be used to fight these like hierarchies and powerful structures and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly use the tools of capitalism, I think against themselves. And, um, I mean, Zapatistas are a great example of that. I think Al-Qaeda was a great example of that and that their goal was to, you know, take down or expose the flaws of sort of the American system. And it was in opposition to the war on terror and the way that globalization operated made it extremely, we, we became extremely vulnerable and they were able to use globalization against itself to sort of strike at the heart of the American economy and collapsed it. Um, and and then you know we all like bought back into it, but I mean right you can you can always use the tools of capitalism against itself. I think it's just about being creative enough to find the ways to do that and and having the people willing to do that, which I think is sort of the problem that we're facing now. Is it's really hard for groups to kind of come together. I think we've all siloed ourselves out pretty effectively, um, which makes really any any challenge. And any real change currently, pretty pretty impossible and pretty bleak. But that's probably just the nihilist in there. So. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, I think the the counterpoint to this libertarian or democratic future of the social media is that it also expands the signal-to-noise ratio so much forth. And this is kind of drawing on Baudrillard's ideas. Mm -hmm. Like, now we have, we have more, I guess, content or messages than ever, but we have less and less meaning necessarily. Yeah, we have no idea how to like decipher all of these messages into something like meaningful. We're just there's so much happening that we just don't even know what to do at this point. 
just like there's everything is bad what do we what do we do right and i think you know in the time of baudrillard was you know i don't think he quite lived long enough to see the social media but he was just even applying this to i guess sort of the cable news the idea of like cable news and i you know what i mean with the famous quote about um the iraq war the original iraq war not really happening yeah the iraq war did not take place only the gulf war did not take exactly only occurred on cnn and yeah it was entirely simulated the media images were more real than the actual conflict itself yeah no absolutely and talking about how like the people that participated in the war didn't really quite understand it in the same way until they came back home and like watched some of the footage on replays that of stuff that had happened on cnn yeah no it's the first time we put journalists on tanks so they could go document everything and we could replay it back for the American public to consume as a spectacle. It's very interesting. It's like that's that's the problem of gatekeepers and like the necessity of them and how that fits into this whole thing because especially with Trump, I think honestly the the most postmodern president there is or there has ever there's ever been. Um, in terms of his, you know what I mean? Like the fake news, like he, oh God, (laughs) and his hatred of like everything about politics. But uh, I mean, his platform is calling to question everything that the political system has been founded on. I mean, obviously he hasn't done that, but that was his platform. It, it strikes a chord, I think, because of, I think the run up to the Iraq invasion, the second, this the 2003 invasion because obviously we had the New York times was all for it. All of, all of Congress. I mean, Hillary voted for the war. Mm-hmm. Like the Democrats were in lockstep with W on that, on that whole thing. And so that definitely, I think that played a role, right. And the distrust of the media that we're dealing with now we're, we're dealing with the fallout of the whole, I mean, remember WMD, like, Fucking Colin Powell getting in front of the UN with the little vial, like yeah. fucking fake. I mean, fake news, literally like fake. That shit was fake. It was bullshit. It was all s- bullshit, right? And now we're supposed to trust. How am I supposed to trust the New York Times now, right? I mean, I guess yes, journalists do make mistakes, but in the context of a for-profit media, especially at that level of the New York Times, you know what I mean? Like it's. I think that that's the. That's the allure of the whole fake news thing. But also, he just spouts out so much bullshit that it just, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, well, again, just like this inundation with information and inability to have the even time. Like, it's ex- in economic terms, it's really expensive to interrogate all of these facts. Like, right, it takes time yeah. to research all of these things. But by the time, like, like there's no time. Like, this, the news cycle and everything is, in particular with, now with Twitter and things like that, it's so fucking fast. It's like before you have time to even research something, like 10 other crazy things have come out, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's impossible to have the invest the time that it would take to determine what the quote-unquote truth is, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I also I like to think that the alt-right isn't thinking about the Iraq war when they're like, remember that fake thing? Yeah, that's why fake news exists. I don't I, I don't think that they're d- directly doing it, but I think that people like there's still enough memory of that 
there's that there's doubt, right? I have a strong feeling most of the alt right doesn't know anything about that, but that's maybe just my very very biased opinion. I think it's it's become so easy to just call everything that disagrees with you fake news because why? It's not even that. I mean, we certainly don't have the time to like go and research everything that that we see because you wouldn't be able to do anything else else with your life. But I just think people are so unwilling to do that these days because they're so certain that they're right about everything they've ever believed in. It's like, and for them to be wrong would sort of call into the very question of their being, like very question of their identity. It's like, if they're wrong, then who even are they? It's right. like people who like entire life is dedicated to guns. Like people <laughs> like are, define themselves via their gun. Right. That they've named Shelly three so years weird. ago, right? But it's like, if what if you interrogated that maybe gun control and like realized gun control was good, who would you even be as a person? Like that would wreck your constitution. Well, I mean, not actually <laughs> it would, the, the constitution certainly, but I mean like your constitution as a person of like right. your own identity. Um, and so it's, it becomes extremely um, not even difficult, but people just aren't willing to interrogate their own complicity and to interrogate the other side because they're the fear of being wrong. So maybe that's why fake news is gaining traction. Because everyone's so certain they're right. And no one is willing to like agree with anyone else on anything. Could be. I don't know. I just think the amount of messages that we're being sent are just like, like I said, it's just the speed of it. It's at literally the speed of light we're receiving these messages and it's just, it's too much. It's impossible to navigate all of it. You have so to. Do you think everything should slow down? I mean, I don't think until, until the civilization collapses, I don't think, <laughs> I mean, I think we're on a runaway train that has already like the train has already it's already fucking flown off the yeah. tracks <laughs> we're just following behind it so eventually we'll we're catch up. we are on the train falling off the cliff and we haven't even figured out that we need to turn around yet yeah that's kind of what my my viewpoint is it's a good metaphor so <laughs> like um yeah it's like the conductor's like still going along like there's like there's still tracks ahead for for ever <laughs> but we're we're crashing down we just haven't imploded just yet but it's happening for sure <laughs> yeah no i mean yeah i agree with i agree with most of that i just don't know we're now in a just a weird time of like what are we supposed to do when we're sort of that far gone yeah exactly because how can how can democracy possibly function even even as intended, like even if we try to live up to the very fucked up ideal of what Americans think freedom and capitalism or not capital democracy is or you know, freedom with representative democracy. representative democracy for every time. Like I see this shit all the time. It's like, oh, well, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. Yeah. I mean, you only see those little small things on Facebook from <laughs> old high school friends. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um. Even if we had, like like I said, it's simply too expensive for that average voter or fucking any individual voter to have the knowledge they would have to have, the amount of knowledge they would have to have to make an informed vote on a candidate, especially at the national level or e you know, even at the fucking state level, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's always a lot to learn. I think it's always... 
And I also find that people are like unwilling to say that they don't know about something. It's like, it's fine that if you, if you don't, if you haven't researched this, I mean, it's a lot to expect of people to research absolutely everything. And, but we sort of like chastise people who like don't know. Right. Um, and so people are people just that like, vote like straight ticket or what have you, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, there are a lot of people who do that and, uh, we'll all avoid my thoughts on that. But, um, <laughs> And those people can certainly understand other issues and like decide they're less important or whatever. And that that's totally fair. But it's people, there's just so much to know and people are expected to know everything. And so everyone just goes around and acts like they do. And then they're like, you can't challenge me because I know everything about this. While the two people arguing know equally nothing is often, I think, what happens. Right. Sort of argue, <laughs> they're argue, having that argument on the dining car on the train that is already fucking yeah <laughs> left the tracks yeah, and it's is... like you're, yeah none of this matters <laughs> it's a great image i like it i do too um so do you want to uh move on and and trash jordan peterson a little bit with me yeah we can absolutely <laughs> do that i've i've only known of him for what about a couple of weeks maybe a four, month three to four like weeks now since you told me about his uh Great existence. <laughs> radical centrism, baby. Woo. Yeah. So <laughs> radical centrism is certainly picking up a lot of steam, um, which isn't surprising in the same way that Trump picked up a lot of steam. Um, and I think it's extremely important to understand why it is and to, because we have to understand why to be able to combat that. And I think that's what the left is doing very poorly is combating the right the rights message and the alt rights message and the centrist message in that i think radical centrists who seem to hate everything about theory and postmodernism they can't handle the idea that reason and that identity itself is even like being called into question is because for their for us to call into question identity for women to claim to have the right to exist for gay men to claim to have the right to exist, like that is a challenge to the majoritarian standard that they have lived up, to, that they have been in and their entire life. And internalized. And internalized it yeah. to where they literally cannot conceive of themselves absent being at the majoritarian center where all identity is measured in relation to that. And so when people simply claiming the right to exist feels like a personal attack and challenge where white men are now being oppressed... It's we're at it. We're we've got a real problem, which <laughs> right. is that we people have claim have staked a claim to the majoritarian standard to such an extent that to not be at that center or to have that center called into question is actually real. And it's like white male to be, you know, like the best identity of all time that everyone ought to aspire to be is so troubling for the very core of their being that it's like, well, we now have to organize based on it welcome alt-right, welcome radical centrists who need to sort of tear down everything about the left that they see, right? Like Jordan Peterson hates universities and he wants all of them to like... The humanities specifically. Yeah, the humanities specifically. Of which we are both yeah, products. Like, no one even <laughs> reads their articles. Every, 
what was he I mean, saying? That's he was, I, I mean, well, I mean, that's I think true. that's probably kind of true. true <laughs> to Unfortunately, be nobody reads the articles, but it's right. like, I don't know. I think there are a lot of really smart articles about gender and sexuality I wish people would read. But yeah, I mean, he's like, universities should fight until they realize like how unimportant humanities is and they like give resources to the right people. And it's like, okay, well, maybe not. And then we have fucking like Mark Zuckerberg creating Facebook without any like context of philosophy or what have you. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, he's and then he's under. like, oh, I'm sorry that I ruined the <laughs> election. Or so. Did you see this? Like, this was pretty recent. He came out and was like, yeah. Oh. There was something pretty recent where people were, like, super pissed at him, but I didn't read it. It was all surrounding this company, Cambridge Analytica, that basically just does, like, it's big data. And so they essentially could create a psychometric profile of you based on a certain amount of, like, it was crazy. I read an article a while back, probably a year ago or so. Um, it was one I stumbled on when I was like, kind of like reading about Steve Bannon and it was sort of describing like if they had so many like likes of yours or what have you, like they could classify you as this type of person. And then they could send very targeted messages that would like toy with your anxieties based on, you know, these different, like this whole profile Mm -hmm. that they could have of you. And that's a lot of what was utilized on platforms like Facebook. I don't know if so much Twitter, but I think Facebook was the big one that's gotten most of the attention. Yeah. I mean, again, when you find ways to make it easier to categorize and classify people based on just like aggregating all desires and aggregating everything about them into like one thing it becomes extremely easy to control and to profit off of and so i mean that's like not super surprising that facebook found another way to do it because that's sort of the essence of the world we're living in right now but back to jordan peterson specifically so what i think is most troubling about peterson is not only i mean the most troubling thing is the amount of fucking traction the guy Gets, oh, yeah. I mean, he's making, I think, something like $60,000 a month on Patreon doing his little diatribes and, and breakdowns. That physically hurts me. <laughs> Crying about the death of, about, oh, the individual, oh my God. Yes, there's no better video than that. <laughs> I, I was telling you this earlier, but, um, you know, I listened to the Michael Brooks show. He's a leftist, lefty podcaster. And he's been making fun of it. I didn't, I had never seen this actual, this specific video that I guess he's been mocking for quite a while. So it was a real treat to stumble on that. I was like, oh my God, this is real. (laughs) Wild stuff. Yeah, absolutely. My like big thing with, with these radical centrists like Jordan Peterson is they like, there's nothing more than they hate in the world than individualism and identity politics. And there are like things they say every now and then that I'm like, I can get behind that. Like I agree with that statement, but they also just have like no idea that they're also play like identity politics. And they're like also caught up in ideology. They're like, why does everyone claim to be an absolute victim? This is horrible. And it's like, well, at the same time you are claiming that like white men are being like attacked at a disproportionate rate. And it's like, you're, you're claiming you're clinging to that same identity or just doing it in another reactionary way. So it's like sometimes he says things that are right. Like he, he, we were talking earlier about how he is like when you can't, when you're at zero and can't even participate in the game of capitalism, you're absolutely screwed. It's like, that's right. 
but then he always like seems to extrapolate it to something else where he thinks he's like so immune from absolutely everything he he identifies as he identifies with the research is the way he's <laughs> described it but to think that research is devoid of ideology and to think that the research he's interested in you know is just like objective and doesn't doesn't come from his pre-existing biases or it's just like an insane thought that he has and his hatred of postmodernism is like why do we always have to critique like why he's uh he said something like postmodernism doesn't have a shred of gratitude <laughs> because we're living in such an amazing world and i'm like well maybe you're living in such an amazing world right. but for people who don't share the same social status as you do and who's also not a straight white man maybe that world's not actually as great and so critique's a pretty good thing but certainly for him critique would be a bad thing because critique can only challenge his position in the world it certainly can't take him any higher i mean there's nothing he's going to critique that's gonna be like you know what jordan peterson he was really screwed out of some opportunities like he's uh so critique i mean it makes sense why he hates it and it makes sense why the narrative picks up so much traction because for so many people just like jordan peterson critique can only threaten their position and so they're they identify with it and enter our current political age what i think is really frustrating about him as well is that i don't know if he's like a hegelian idealist almost um because he does he has this very darwinian approach to or so he what his claim is that dominance hierarchies are present in, in nature right and so it is it is natural it is there's like this naturalistic fallacy that men are the innovators in society because and it all has to do with sort of this evolutionary psychology essentially right okay that due to like these biological or in these these biological roles that men and women play in terms of reproduction are also like that also ha determines a lot of the social interactions that occur um but his critique of like marxism and postmodernism is that postmodernists and marxists are arguing that hierarchies are not based on competence his argument is that they are based on competence that like hierarchy is like biologically ingrained into people and, and like yeah exactly because of these biological you know especially in the context i think of reproduction especially is where this comes from so obviously i disagree in the sense yeah. that like not def I mean, anybody who has <laughs> been in any hierarchy or any, you know, I guess a job or sports team or like any application of this in any group that has a hierarchy, obviously n not the most competent person is in, you know what I mean? The co most competent person is not always in charge, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I've definitely challenged that notion that just because someone's at the top, like, that we're in sort of some sort of merit meritocratic society or you know maybe maybe like on on average maybe that's what he maybe i'm being uncharitable honestly i would say his argument probably if i'm being generous his argument is probably that 
on average, the hierarchies are the most, like, it is a meritocracy overall, although there may be specific instances where it's not the case. Maybe. I also just, like, he might even be right that hierarchy is sort of built in, the desire for competition, which I don't I don't really agree with, that it's, like, a biological fixed reality that we all have to, like, compete with one another. Um, but even if he's right, I don't think it it applies to the amount of competition that we currently experience in our like capitalist system. It's like, yes, I can want to be better than you because it makes me feel better. Um, I can want to be smarter than you because it makes me feel better. But in our system to be better than someone else is to take away all of their resources. It is because I'm smarter than you. I need to have all of the money and you get absolutely nothing, right? Like you can put someone so far down the rungs of the social and economic ladder that they're be they're at the point of absolute expendability. It's like they could die and none of us care. Like we can walk past them and not acknowledge them as a person. They have no name to us. They have no they have nothing about them that is important to us at all. And so it's like even if competition is biologically ingrained and you know he's right about that and so are the other other radical centrists. It's like okay but that doesn't mean that like the amount of competition that exists within our capitalist system is inevitable. It doesn't mean that that's normal for us to want for for us to have you know one percent of the population holding all of almost all of the wealth and everyone else to have none. That's not normal. That's not natural. It's like pe- people can want that, and that that becomes normal and natural over time as we we say it is as we as we give it legitimacy of you know to have 14 million dollars means you're more important than someone who has a hundred thousand right like we we've given that legitimacy and so it's become normal over time but that isn't but it's still contingent that's that's right that's historically produced that's socially produced that doesn't mean we can't change it by challenging it by speaking by by challenging its existence as a universal standard challenging the universality of that standard and creating different ones, right? It's, it, it's possible to imagine a world in which for me to succeed, you don't have to fail. And for, and for them to be like, how can you even imagine that? Because biology is just like, it's not really comprehensible to me. Right. And I, I think to be, to be fair to, to Peterson, I think he does acknowledge some of that. Like he definitely, like you said, he acknowledges that it's a, it's a problem. And he talks about like the Pareto distribution and yeah, no, and that I mean, sort he of certainly thing. acknowledges some of the problems of capitalism. But at the same time, then he's also like he was against a living wage. <laughs> he was complaining about women that wear makeup and heels and like blush and like red oh, lipstick God, at, right. in the and like in the workplace, and how this was a really confusing message for the for the men. Because, like, they're trying to make them, like, these are all associated with, like, reproduction. Like, whenever, se- like, sexual arousal will make the cheeks flush and the red, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, and, if he can only conceive of women as an object, then, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's challenging for him when women wear makeup. But <laughs> but assuming that women have an identity in and of themselves and they're not just an object for male consumption, then right. his argument sort of falls apart. I also think... Most importantly is that like, okay, well, here's in this, in this supposed system that is based on merit and competency, women 
are f- in many ways, uh, well, not in many ways, they are forced to like cohere to these traditional images of what womanhood is, right? So yeah, it's like if you want to succeed in this hierarchy, then you have to meet this standard of what femininity is, yeah, right? It creates a normative feminine subject. Exactly. So it's like women are not like, and they're inter- they've internalized this too. So obviously, it's like that. That's that plays a role. It's not so. It's not like oh, they're. And I don't know if he was necessarily saying these women are like purposefully thing, but it kind of felt like he was ignoring the whole like. You know what I mean? The cultural signifiers and pressures that exist on women, like they're oftentimes reduced to nothing but an object, you know what I mean? An, an object, object, right? Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a idiotic thing to, any idiotic hill to sort of die on. Well, yeah, he I, he just seems to like to not think about anything other than like materiality. Like he he's said multiple times that the there's not really a gender pay gap and that it's not because women are devalued if there is one because he only think because he can't even conceive of like social and cultural norms influencing the way that job applications are read or like the way that like ceos value their employees right like if you can if you can be a male ceo and buddy buddy with the five male workers under you and you have one female worker under you that can't hang at boys night like you're gonna pay her less and like that's the world we live in and it's a horrible one um and he like can't conceive of that as existing he's like well that just means that she's not as smart as them if she's getting paid less and it's like but is that what that means right because i have a strong feeling it's not and that there are other factors that influence that which is men's hatred of women other than to be used as sexual objects yeah, I, I, man, I wish I had this study handy, but there was, you might even remember this too, there was a study conducted where they, I figured if it was job applications or journal articles, but it was like, they changed the names of mm-hmm. people, like, they basically turned in the same either article or job application, but they switched the names from like a, a female name to a male name, and the male names were rated higher yeah, or I mean, had the same happens, more opportunity. The same happens across racial lines. Oh, I'm sure. Where like basic white names are way more um, likely to get the job than non-basic like pe- names that people of color use. Yeah, I mean, that. that's just like, a, there have been a bunch of studies about that. But it's like, man, if you're born a Bob, you're in a pretty good spot. <laughs> and so his argument too is, like whenever you try to mess with these quote-unquote natural merit meritocratic hierarchies that there's going to be problems whenever whenever you're forcing people you're forcing equity on people that that is authoritarian yeah no he does absolutely and see that's what's wild to me and that's why i'm like so disenchanted with current or like with politics right now because he's not alone in that in that thinking it's but for it to be authoritarian, he thinks it's authoritarian because it's a challenge to his social position and what he knows. And because to feel that something's authoritarian because it's a challenge to you is the problem. It's, is it makes it impossible to have a dialogue or to reach a middle ground because it's like, they're fascist, I'm not. Like, we can't ever meet in the center. And that's certainly true for some people. Like, like I'm not going to go mess with Westboro Baptist Church. Like we're just, we're not going to get anywhere. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. at, 
at no point are we going to agree on anything. But for him to think it's a challenge, for him to think it's authoritarian is because he is so secure in his privileged position that he can't have it challenged. And that's what I think so many people feel and why Trump's narrative gains so much traction of so many people just they can't handle any challenge to their position in the world and what they have always grown up to believe. And it's because we indoctrinate people with beliefs and teach people not to question. To eat from the trash can of ideology. Oh, God. Always eating. I knew that was coming. <laughs> um, something else that I've heard him talk about that I'd like to get your, your thoughts on is, okay, so he had a debate with another radical centrist, we'll call him. <laughs> Uh, fucking, oh, goddamn, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, actually. Oh, Sam Harris, duh. And so they were dis- they were having a discussion over truth and what it meant. And so, ironically, Jordan Peterson has this very kind of postmodern view of truth, okay. uh, like a postmodern pragmatist almost view of truth that if something isn't functional, then it's not true. Okay. So... Let's give this an example. Um, maybe something like the invention of the atomic bomb or like some type of biological weapon, for example. Uh-huh. So he would say that it's that knowledge that knowledge isn't truth because it doesn't have a like a a function to it other than like death, right? Okay, that's. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Which I th- is a very like pragmatic sort of viewpoint. A very like, uh, ironically, I think that's, I mean, that's somewhat relativistic in a sense. Yeah. You know, it's certainly relative. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think of another, um, a better example that really captures it. Those are the kind of, the be- I forget the example they use, but uh, it's kind of like, okay, so within within evolution, there are accidental things that have benefit to them, but it, they may not actually be true, okay? So, for example, um, like if you're afraid of the dark, for example, mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the dark that darkness is evil, but if you think that darkness is evil, it sort of has a benefit to it, right? Because it's going to keep you like out of, you know what I mean? Keep you from It's going to keep you from staying out at night. Or like let's say you're walking on an island and it's dark and there's a hole and it's dark so you can't see it. So that fear of the dark would keep you in your home and keep you from wandering out at night, right? Okay. So it has a there's a functional benefit, although it's not necessarily like determined, like you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know that makes sense. That's sort of his idea of truth is that the only things that are true are the things that are actual that are useful, so to speak. Yeah, I just don't know if we can only claim what's useful as true. Like things can be dysfunctional and. I don't even know what it means for something to be true in that regard, though, which is, like, a, a weird question. But, I mean, like, things cannot work, and it's... What does that even mean? <laughs> Here's me trying to wrap my head around truth. 
doesn't like everyone tried to do this and we right. just like never progressed at all. But doesn't that sound, that sounds kind of postmodern in a way, right? Yeah, that definitely sounds, that sounds pretty close. Yeah. It, I mean, as much as he hates postmodernism, I, I know, ex- he is that. Exactly, exactly. That's what I find so kind of maddening about his critique is like he has this very situational notion of what truth can be doesn't he like he doesn't realize that that's kind of what postmodernism is almost getting at yeah in it's a, trying in to a critique sense. our normative conceptions of reason and truth and yeah i mean i think ultimately he just has no idea that ideology is everywhere and that he's embedded in it and he thinks he's like the smartest person alive and outside of ideology and like everyone just needs to listen to him and so i think he's a smart dude who has some good thoughts and as soon as he understands that he's trapped in ideology maybe he'll have better thoughts those are my hopes (laughs) another thing that's kind of frustrating he often talks about Nietzsche who is you know probably one of the most influential thinkers on the postmodernist right have you read much Nietzsche directly no 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 I have not I know just about every like weird alt right person I see like a YouTube video of, which like, is also frustrating. It's I like know, all of like, my heroes. Well, I was really inspired by Nietzsche, and I'm like, what? <laughs> um, but that's probably just because they're taking his concept of like the will to power, and they're like everyone's slave a morality snowflake. and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just they use his reading to justify their like them calling ev- them calling everyone a snowflake. It's like I think probably their understanding and like use of Nietzsche to the extent that they use him super frustrating for me um who else he also draws on Jung a lot and the Jungian archetypes and also kind of he kind of tries to apply it to Christianity as like there's a functional element there's a functional evolutionary benefit to the the ideas that are passed along in these stories so he does, I don't think he's, he's not a fundamentalist. He is a Christian, he, um, which he, you won't hear him say very often, but he will often draws on that. But in the sense of like, these are, fu- these myths have a function, like they have a cultural function. Mm-hmm. And so that, that function is justification for, in many ways, I think these traditional notions about gender and equality and, and things that, and hierarchies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be better off to realize that most everything is a myth. It's <laughs> like the things that we believe are absolutely true and have never once questioned are all just myths that we've created over time. And we've created concepts imbued, imbued them with cultural value. And then through continuing to perform particular scripts that are written on us, they become legitimate. And they also, I think many times they lose their, it's like the, the practice or the ritual or what have you, for example, continues on, but it's been completely detached from its original purpose or, you know what I mean? Give me an example for that. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I'm trying to think, I'm gonna have to think of one on the spot. Um, I mean, I can think of the way that like men like masculinity constructed because like men were always doing like hard labor. And then like over time we still only conceive of masculinity as like 
toughness and like even though that's yeah. not what the majority of men do now right yeah yes that's a that's a great example I, thank you <laughs> thank you for rescuing oh, me. i was just making sure i was understanding no what yeah that's saying. you're definitely that's that's, that's a pretty good example yeah i mean these things become ingrained over and over again and i think it's and arbitrary and to me that's what the that's what's the important germ of deconstruction is is that it's like realizing that the center in terms of like meaning is all is arbitrary all is always going to be arbitrary always yeah but we have to be aware we have to deconstruct it so that we really can dig hopefully i don't know we have to be able to function in the world right so mm-hmm. deconstructing hierarchies and decon decentering things and realizing that there's an arbitrary nature to that center can keep us from I don't know. It's some type of tool to keep us from going down the wrong path. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, or, no, I, I think you're right. I think you have to realize that everything is sort of touched by power and that things are things are arbitrarily created and imbued with value and with that power. And so it's about questioning enough and questioning long, questioning deeply enough and long enough to sort of understand that at root of so many things we believe and hold true is fundamentally arbitrary and being okay with some of those and not being okay with others. I think that's a great way to close out the podcast. Unless you have something else you'd like to add. No, that's about all I have. I think I've ranted a lot. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on Kanan. Um, I guess, is there any, do you have any published work or anything like that? We can direct people to. Uh, If only I did. Um, I am currently working on it. Stay tuned. Hopefully I will. But uh, currently, no. No, I have nothing. Okay, fair enough. Well, I hope we need to... I'll have you back on, hopefully. Hopefully you had fun today. I did. I had a great time. Um, because I would definitely like to... I've been so obsessed, and I'm sure anybody who's listened to the, a number of the podcasts has realized that i am been obsessed with Baudrillard in particular. Yeah. Um, so we will have to jump into into some simulations some simulacra soon yeah we will absolutely have to do that i would love nothing more (laughs) sounds great well uh, thanks again for coming on and joining me today yeah thank you so much